0: let's march on with this multi-part series about intro to investing. Today's going to be part three all about bonds in this, the 59th episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, social security, Medicare, portfolio withdrawal strategies, annuities, estate planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you as always for listening. Today, we'll be talking about bonds. James Bonds. Nope, just kidding. We're talking about financial bonds. Super exciting stuff. I know. Try to contain yourself. So this is the third part in a to-be-determined number of part series on intro to investing. Uh, just to recap quickly, the first part was general background of investing and some other concepts to keep in mind in a summary of the various different account types, financial account types, like regular brokerage account, IRA, Roth IRA, etc. Last week was part two, was all about stocks. That that was a good one. Uh, today, I promise to try to make it as good as that. Today will be all about bonds. And spoiler alert, next week, episode uh, part four, episode 60, will be about mutual funds and exchange traded funds, a.k.a. ETFs. Beyond that, still not entirely sure what, what uh, structure I'm going to do. One, I, I just decided today, one I'm going to do will be about a sort of capstone, tie it all together. Uh, now that you learned about individual specific things, background, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, try to try to do like a capstone episode that pulls it all together. And is something along the lines of uh, how, how to create a portfolio, you know, h- how to um, lit- literally pull it all together. So anyway, I haven't thought much beyond that, but uh, so I don't have a name or outline, but um, that, that'll definitely be a good one. So let's get in it with bonds. Uh, Need to do a disclaimer, additional disclaimer above and beyond the one at the end of this podcast. Uh, since we are talking about investing, this uh, this whole series, this podcast, anything I say is is definitely not investing advice. It is not a recommendation to buy or sell anything. It is not a recommendation to hold something. Uh, it is simply helpful hints, education, and guidance. General education. Um, I try to avoid making any reference or mention to any specific securities or if i do just again know this this is definitely not any sort of recommendation to buy sell hold trade whatever um i i think i also don't mention performance uh, much if ever but if i ever do even in passing unconsciously know that the uh, past performance is not a guarantee of or is not indicative of future results or is no guarantee of future results all right moving on that's the disclaimer this is also not uh, legal financial uh, tax advice etc this is all just again helpful hands education now, bonds could be tricky, especially if you're not familiar with them. I do have a video uh, I did in my Facebook group, a live video that I also repurposed as a YouTube video uh, that has some helpful spreadsheets and other sort of uh, uh, slides I made at the time to help go through this. So I'll put a link to that. That'll that'll definitely be complimentary and helpful. Uh, a lot of the same stuff talking about now is already in there, but you know, if uh, and vice versa. But if you want to f- see that more, again, with the handouts and stuff, definitely check out that link. I also did a, a, an episode in this podcast about bonds and bond funds. That was episode 16 from early 2022. You can go back and check that out. I'll have a link to that as well. This Today's episode is definitely more detailed than, than that was. That was kind of high level. Um, this one is definitely going to be a little more in the weeds and more thorough. So bonds, they are uh, typically an important part of portfolios, especially for people in or near retirement. As we start to talk through this, it'll hopefully make some sense why. Again, with the other episodes in this multi-part series, this is not necessarily specific to retirement, whether you're in or near retirement. This is just general. For anyone who's interested in learning about investments, this is general uh, investing knowledge. Now, I will try to make reference or tie in retirement related stuff where where it comes to mind as i'm as i'm riffing through this but otherwise this is not retirement specific um so bonds are often misunderstood for various reasons i suppose one is people don't often know you know um, they know about stocks like i mentioned last week in stocks stocks are fairly easy compared to bonds at least fairly easy to understand there's a lot more media coverage of them they, uh, there's stock exchanges where places like CNBC can set up shop and broadcast from with fancy, colorful, bright, uh, you know, uh, screens and, and logos in the background. There is no bond market like that. There's no physical exchange for that. So you, you can't quite hoist up and, and make uh, lots of, you know, clickbait um, video and, and, and whatever plus the price swings of bonds aren't going to be as large as, as stocks in, in almost uh, in, in many in most cases and you'll you'll see why as we go through this so it's it's not doesn't make nearly as juicy a story to talk about bonds as it does stocks which is part of the reason why in my opinion they're not as understood plus for as simple as they are on the surface they, they do, do get fairly technical at times which is probably another reason why they're not quite uh, well understood so hopefully i will um clear a lot of this up for you all as as we get going now, most of my talk tonight will be in reference to what I'll call normal bonds, not savings bonds. I will make a mention of savings bonds at the end. Most, com, most popular one now is probably the U.S. government I bond, where I stands for inflation. I will make mention of that at the end. Otherwise, between now and then, I'm not talking about savings bonds. Those are their own special animals. I'm talking about what I'll call normal bonds, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So a bond is ultimately nothing more than an IOU from or a loan to a borrower. It's an IOU saying that the borrower has borrowed money from you and agrees to pay you back. Uh, they'll they pay you back that money and they'll pay you back interest along the way. That's it at a super high level. Also, these bonds are tradable. Even though you're not the one necessarily, well, You're probably not in most cases, you're not the one who, who initially lent the money to the borrower. Um, you are the one who bought from that initial lender. You bought the right to receive the repayment of the principal and the interest payments from the borrower. So bonds are tradable. There's a market to buy and sell the right to receive the uh, repayment of principal and interest payments. That's a bond in, in a nutshell. So some quick terminology, the amount borrowed is called the principal. It's also called the face value or par value of the bond. And that's um, you know, how much will be repaid when the bond matures or expires. So maturity date is the next term that is literally that. It, it's how long this bond's life is. At the end of its maturity date, the principal or face or par value will be paid to whoever owns the bond at the time. There's also interest along the way, as I said. The uh, interest in the US, at least, is generally paid <clears throat> twice a year, every six months. Uh, so there's an interest rate on the bond. That interest rate is also, is also called a coupon rate or it's coupon interest and i'll explain why it's called coupon in a bit and then again the, the principle is uh is what what's repaid at the end so this will all make more sense as, as i walk through in more detail these these different uh features or parts of a bond so who, who issues bonds uh it could, could be a lot of things it could be governments you know national federal governments it could be uh corporations it could be municipalities which are state and local governments could be your state could be your town could be a local school district uh things like that could be in uh municipal, you know, local organization, public organization that uh exists to uh build and 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 maintain infrastructure in, in your in your town or your state or whatever like that. Now beyond the scope of this um this particular episode, there's also mortgage backed securities, which are bonds. These get quite technical, but basically it's a bond that's uh buys a bunch of mortgages, outstanding mortgage loans from people, pools them up. Uses the cash flows from those mortgages to repay people who own the bond. So again, quite technical. Uh, I'll leave that for another day. But that just want to bring bring up that that's at least another type of bond. So why issue bonds? What do they do? Well, it's a ra- it's a way to raise capital. You know, to raise money to do stuff with. Um, just like last week, remember we talked about equities. Equity is a when when a company is growing, it's privately owned. It, it wants or needs to expand. It can raise capital, can raise money by selling off some of its ownership. You know, the, the current people who own it can sell it off to the public. In the process of giving up some of their ownership, they get ca- The company gets cash in return, uh, and and the company can can do stuff with that. So that's uh, that, that's that's permanent equity. Uh, that's equity, which is a source of permanent capital. Whereas bonds or debt are not. It, it, it's a loan. It, it's you borrow money for a certain length of time, generally one year, five year, ten years, thirty years. You borrow the money, you pay off interest, you, you you pay the bond back at the end of its maturity, and that's it. Bonds over. So it is not permanent capital like uh, like equity is. So what do you do with this money? Well, you can do lots of things with it. Any any time a company or a government or a municipality needs money to do something, it can it can raise equity. Well, uh, uh, governments can't raise equity, but like corporations can. Um, but uh, they, they can they can raise debt. They can issue bonds to borrow money to fund programs like the U.S. Treasury, for example, is one of the largest borrowers in the world. uh, It it issues bonds to raise money to pay for government programs and to pay for the day-to-day operations of the government. Or if you're a corporation, you can issue a bond to raise money to to build a new factory or facility, or you're trying to beef up and and expand your research and development program, and that's going to cost a lot of money. You can do that with a bond, for example, to to borrow money to eventually uh, hopefully put it to good use and make more you know, ultimately make more profit from from the, that utilization than it'll cost you to pay interest on on this bond. So that's that's who issues them. That's why they issue them at a, at a high level. And let's just talk a little more. Last week, I started to get into an, an accounting lesson of something called the balance sheet. And I was referring to this from a corporate perspective. Governments aren't quite the same because remember, I said governments can't really have equity, like there's no ownership per se because they're collectively owned by, by, by the people. The corporations are owned by its investors, its stockholders. So, recall, and I'll just recap briefly: uh, assets are everything a company owns. It's its property. You know, it's its land, it's its buildings, it's its uh, machinery, it's its intellectual rights, which you can't touch or feel, but they have value to it. Those are all assets. Assets have to get paid for and or owned somehow. So, from a from an accounting perspective, assets has to equal the sum of all of your debts. You know, all your liabilities plus your equity, your ownership in the company. Those two things have to equal your assets. So your assets are what you own. Your liabilities and equity are how you pay for them, how you finance them, basically. So the the quick example I gave last time was you start a t-shirt-making company with $10,000 cash. You use that cash to buy some screen printing equipment, some ink, and some some blank t-shirts. You now have, as of then, you have equity of $10,000. You have $10,000 worth of assets. That's your machinery, shirts, and ink. And it's owned outright from the $10,000 of ownership of equity you put in. There's not any debt, so there's no liabilities here. What if on top of that, you you took out a loan of 10,000 bucks from a bank to buy 10 grand more of equipment, of shirts, et cetera. Now you have $20,000 of assets, and that has to equal on the other side of the equation, 20. And it does. It's $10,000 of outstanding debt you now have, plus your original $10,000 of equity. So, Whereas last week's episode, we talked all about the equity portion of that, that right side of that formula. Today, we're talking about the liability portion of, of that right side of that formula. So slightly technical, but um, I just thought for some of you, at least, it may make sense to think about this, especially those who have an accounting background. You'd be like, oh, yeah, I get it. Um, just like the, in our example, the equity could be sold off to the public. Uh, you can also, the, the, the debt can be sold to the public. Um, you can, you can raise debt. You can, you know, you can get a loan from a bank where it's private. You just pay the bank back. Or as we're talking about today, you can raise debt. You can raise money through a bond where they, uh, you know, the ultimate payments of that bond can be bought and or the right to receive those payments. I should say can be bought and sold freely in the market. That That's what a bond is. But another big difference. Stock has no stated end date or maturity. Like we talked about last week. Stock lasts as long as the company does. If and when the company ever gets sold, um, ceases to exist, goes bankrupt, then it sort of goes away. Like Tesla, for example, Tesla was a publicly traded company. Its stock was out there in the world for you, me, and anyone else to buy and sell freely. Well, Elon Musk bought the company. In effect, he bought all the outstanding shares of Tesla that everyone in the world owned. He paid for it, bought it outright, took it all private. And, and, and once he did that, I forget what the effective date was. Uh, I, I want to say it was August. I could be wrong. Uh, maybe, well, whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, once he did that, those those shares, those public shares, ceased to exist. Everyone who owned them got cashed out for them. Done. It's over. So stock can eventually end, but you know, outside of that, it lasts as long as the company does. Um, so stock doesn't really have a have a you know expiration date. Bonds definitely do. Uh, bonds, like I said, have a stated maturity anywhere from you know weeks to typically thirty years. There are some exceptions. Uh, just going back quickly, and just came to mind. There's an example of a stock that's still around, and at this point has has no uh, no expectation of stopping. General Electric. It was one of the first companies that existed that still exists today. Its stock has been around since the late 1800s, and still here. So, if and when GE ever you know gets shut down from being bankrupt or fraudulently put out of business or bought by someone, then the story can change. But until then, stock doesn't end. Here we are, you know, hundred plus years later, and still going. All right. Let's talk more about the components of a bond. So I mentioned the the principal amount or the amount that's initially borrowed and promised to be repaid is also called the face value or par value. Commonly, it's one thousand. You know, a bond is one thousand dollars of face or par value. There's some that could be more, some that could be less. But for today's purpose, uh, well, I mean, it's true that most bonds are usually denominated in increments of a thousand. And I'm going to assume today. Unless they say otherwise, that, that the bonds are a thousand dollars per bond, which means you can't buy a partial bond. You know, you can't buy thirty-seven dollars of a bond. You have to buy a thousand dollars worth or increments of of a thousand. As far as maturity dates, I already touched on this. They could be as short as a few weeks, or it could be uh, up to thirty years. There are some bonds that are a hundred years, for example. There may even be some that are fifty. I don't know. It's definitely not common. There's a few hundred year bonds I, I, I've I've seen in my uh, in my career. There's also something called perpetuals. Uh, perpetual, as the name implies, bond does not have an end date. It, it lasts forever. Uh, not very common again, but, you know, just want to tell you technically some bonds can have maturities more than 30 years or can actually last forever uh, in, in the case of perpetual, but, but that's the exception, not the norm. The interest that's paid is usually a fixed rate meaning for the life of the bond, it'll pay you whatever rate is stated at the time you buy. It doesn't change or fluctuate. There are some bonds that have variable interest rates. I won't be talking about those today. Again, they're the exception, not the norm, but but they do exist. Generally, most bonds pay a fixed stated rate of interest that lasts over the life of the bond. Whether it's a one-year bond or a 30-year bond or something in between, you will know what the interest rate is when you buy it because it's fixed. In the US, the interest is generally paid semi-annually or twice a year. Uh, some countries are, are different. Europe, I think, is uh, annual or is it quarter? I'm getting, I get it confused. Anyway, some pay quarterly, some pay annually, but generally, at least in the U.S., most bonds pay uh, interest twice a year. The interest that's paid is also called coupons. Now, as I touched on last week with stocks, most stocks exist only electronically. There's no paper certificates anymore. Or if you can get it, you have to pay extra for it. And it's basically just a novelty. It's not even uh, evidence of ownership at this point, I don't, I don't think. Um, bonds are largely the same. They used to all exist in paper form when you had a bond and it paid, uh, interest payments twice a year. If it was a 30 year bond, for example, there would be 60 total interest payments you get during the life of the bond, right? 30 years times two payments a year. You used to get a coupon book that had 60 coupons. You would literally rip out and mail into the company or take to a bank to evidence your ownership of it and that you're due the receipt of this coupon. They would then pay you that. So that's why the, the interest payments are, are uh, still called coupon payments. It's just sort of a legacy term held over from days of yore, but uh vast majority of bonds you're likely to come across at this point are, are going to exist only in electronic form. Um, the, they, they do not exist in paper form. Th- there may still be some, so I don't want to say none do, but it, it's, it's not uh, common at all at this point. So quick example of how the interest works. So let's assume you have a, a $1,000 par value, face value bond, and it's a 10-year bond and it has a 5% interest rate. Now the interest rates or coupon rates will be stated in annual terms. So in this case, uh, this bond, again, $1,000, if it's 5% annual interest, that means 50 bucks a year is what the annual interest is, but you get interest paid twice a year. So that means you will get $25 of interest every six months for the life of this 10 year bond, which means in total, if you bought this bond on day one, you're going to get a total of 20 different interest payments of $25 each so long as you own the bond and at the end of 10 years you will get the $1000 uh face value principal value back from from the company so that's interest and um th- that that's that's the totality of the economics of buying a bond what you buy a bond when you buy a bond you get the right to receive in this case these 20 different interest payments and the repayment of the $1000 principal at the end Now, you can sell a bond along the way. You don't have to hold it until it matures. And we'll talk more more about that in a bit. But that's all there is for a bond. A a bond is nothing more than a series of of contractually known cash flows, period. So in that sense, quite simple bonds as opposed to stocks. But you'll see how these get a little little more difficult. Uh, There's more complexity to it than that. So let's now talk about how bonds get... Uh, created like last week we talked about how stock has the ipo or initial public offering process when when the stock is first put out to the world at large bonds have something similar bonds get what's called underwritten there's an underwriting process loosely comparable to how stocks get ipo'd so the uh let's try to walk through a basic example there's a company that's growing and it wants to borrow money to build a new uh factory and it decides it wants to do that through through taking on debt, as opposed to you know issuing more equity or something like that, it wants to specifically do a loan. Now it can get a loan from a bank, perhaps in which case it's a private loan, just like you and I. If you go to get a mortgage from a bank, you go directly to the bank. They they you know look at your credit worthiness. They decide how much they're willing to lend to you. They set up the terms of it, and boom, you now have this contractual obligation to uh, have to pay the bank back a certain amount of money every. Well, in the case of a mortgage, it's going to be every month. But so uh, or. In the case of a company, they have the option to go to the public markets. They they can borrow money from investors from the world at large through issuing a bond to the market. They're they're, they're not limited to getting a private loan from a bank like you and I in in most common folk are. So let's assume they want to do a bond. And they want to borrow $100 million is what they decided they want slash need to build this factory. So now what do you do? Well, first you have to find an investment bank. An investment bank are the ones that go out and actually do all this work of creating the bond and getting it out to the market. So common investment banks are like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, um, Credit Suisse, UBS, which is another Swiss bank. There, there's a bunch of them, but these big Wall Street banks are the ones, these investment banks that that do the creation of the bond. The investment banks use their knowledge of, of the markets and what investor demand may be. And they work with the company wanting to borrow money through the bond to give them feedback and be like, you want to borrow a hundred million bucks? uh, okay. There might not be appetite for that because people don't, don't want to lend you that much money. Maybe it's only 50 you can borrow, or maybe you can borrow up to 200 million, for example, but let's just assume they decide, okay, a hundred does work. There is investor demand for it. The investment banks will also figure out what's the appropriate interest rate that the market's going to require from you to lend you this hundred million dollars. Is it 4%? Is it 5%? Is it 6%? I don't know. So the investment banks do that work. They have that knowledge. they, They work with the company to, uh, to figure out. So let's just assume it's going to be five, 5% five in this case. So $100 million is going to be lent and it's going to be uh, 5%. Now, as far as what the maturity is going to be, that's also a collaborative effort. So the company will say, okay, we, we may want to borrow money for 30 years or they only want it for 5 or 10. There's, there's various reasons you know, what may drive their decision for that at the company level, but the investment bank will also give feedback and be like, well, the market doesn't quite have demand to lend you money for 30 years you know, you may be limited to 20 years or 10 years or something. So that, they'll figure that out as well. Let's just assume it doesn't matter. You know, it's 10 years. Uh, this bond in our example is what it's going to be. $100 million, 10 years, 5% annual interest. So now that the structure of the bond has has started to take shape, the investment bank will do the work necessary with the Securities and Exchange Commission to uh, create and register this bond with with the regulators. There's this whole formal process I won't get into of creating a um, uh, prospectus, creating the bond indenture, which is the actual sort of contractual agreement that governs uh, all aspects of the bond and, you know, between bondholders and uh, the bond lender or, or the company, I should say. So the investment banks do all that, get get that all done. And then eventually um, once it's, you know, given the green light from the Securities and Exchange Commission that yes, this bond can can happen, can exist, then uh, the investment bank actually you know goes and, and sells them into the market. So what, what that means is again, hundred million dollars we're working with. They will find a hundred million dollars of, of interested buyers. Once they have those, those buyers sort of lined up and they got all this regulatory paperwork done. They then say, okay, bond buyers, here we are, you know, give us the money, give us a hundred million bucks. We'll, we'll give you these bonds. They fork uh, these bond buyers. These, these will uh, fork over hundred million bucks to the investment bank. The investment bank funnels it through. Now maybe it goes directly to I. I Don't quite know. I guess it could be different. But ultimately, this $100 million makes its way to the company who's actually borrowing it. And then uh, in return, all those people who who bought these bonds now have these bonds in their possession. They got these electronic receipts that say, hey, I'm entitled to this 5% annual interest. And then, you know, $1,000 per bond repayment at the end in 10 years. That's a bond. Now, the the borrowing company doesn't actually get $100 million. There's going to be fees associated with paying the investment bank for the work that it did. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know. It depends. It's a few, per, up to a few percent generally is what the investment banks take. So let's just assume it's 2% fee uh, on a hundred million dollars. That means they'd have to pay 2 million bucks to the investment banks for, for the work in underwriting the bond. So the company only gets $98 million into its coffers yet ultimately has to pay back, you know, a hundred million plus interest along the way. Uh, that's anyway, that's just a fee for service for working with the investment banks. Um, that's it. So, so now the, the bonds are out there. Now, typically the uh well not i can't say typically but often the investment banks will uh use their own money to buy these bonds like they'll they'll pay out of pocket for these hundred million bucks of of worth of bonds they then flip them they turn around and sell them uh, into the market to other buyers to the big brokerages to retail customers to whomever Um, Or, in some cases, the ultimate end users, the end buyers, could be directly buying them from the company without the investment banks first buying them. It it really all depends. There's no one way these things have to be done. But ultimately, generally speaking, the investment banks, they don't want to buy these and hold them as their own investments. They buy them purely to turn around and flip them into the market. Um, And ideally make, make a little bit of money in the process. Uh, You know, they can buy them at one price and sell them at slightly higher uh, into the market. That's another way in which investment banks could in effect get compensated for, for their services in, uh, in underwriting these bonds. So some quick terminology, the, the uh, primary market is when the bonds are first sold to the first buyers, be it the investment banks buying it or the end, uh, end investors buying it, whoever buys them first from the company, that's the primary market. Then they can be sold to others. You don't have to hold a bond to them. Sure, you, you can sell it freely into the market. That's called the secondary market. You know, once the primary purchasers sell them to someone else, that's called the secondary market. So speaking of, uh, let's talk quickly about how to buy bonds. Again, these are just what I'll call normal bonds for now. These are not savings bonds like U.S. Treasury I bonds. You may be like, well, that's not how you buy bonds. What are you talking about? That That's later on. This is just these sort of normal non-savings bonds I'm talking about. So unlike stocks, where I talked about last week, bonds, the vast majority do not trade through an organized formal exchange. There are some, it's not common though. Um, I've never actually saw an exchange traded bond, but but they do exist, I've been told. Bonds are another OTC or over-the-counter product. We talked about that term briefly last week in, in, in the stock episode, meaning there's no exchange. It's just, it's directly bought and sold between users, between brokers through a series of computers or phones or chat systems, um, that's how you buy. It's just like, hey, you got this bond? Cool, I want to buy it. I'll give you, you know, what's the price? Ninety-five dollars. Done. Cool, whatever. That's how you buy a bond. It's all, it's all an electronic process. Now, as far as you, the you know, ultimate retail investor, just like stocks, you buy bonds into a various uh, one of multiple account types. You can have a normal brokerage account in which you can buy bonds. You can have an IRA, a Roth IRA in which you can buy bonds. You can have a health savings account, you know, HSA. Uh, in which you can, you can buy bonds potentially. So I won't go too in-depth into the account types. Again, just know that you need this electronic um, uh, account at a financial custodian that's able to hold financial assets like stocks or bonds. That's where you would buy bonds uh, into generally. So you have an account somewhere and then how you actually buy them, kind of similar to how you buy stocks, but a little more manual and a little more going on behind the scenes. So when you buy a stock in your brokerage account, there's probably a trading page that you log into your brokerage website and say, you know, put in the ticker you want, put in the number of shares. Is it a buyer to sell? Click done. And, and that's it. Now, many brokers do have a process like that for buying bonds. You can screen through and pick the particular bond or bonds you want. It'll give you a price quote. Here's how much it's going to be. You put in the number of bonds you want, et cetera, and, and you get them. Now, some brokers, their, their uh, electronic interface may not be that um Simple and easy to use as it is stocks, in which case you may want to call up your uh, broker or your custodian and, and say, Hey, I want to buy a bond. Um, can you do it for me? In which case, yes, there will be a voice, you know, a real life person, I'll take the order for you. Either way, there's going to be uh, almost certainly some sort of fee or commission. Unlike with stocks, like I talked about last week, the vast majority of, of brokerage accounts, especially for retail investors, uh, don't charge any sort of per trade fee or commission at this point the, 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 most of them abolished those fees uh in 2020 2019 i want to say give or take bonds very different uh, almost certainly there will be some some bond fee maybe it's relatively nominal like you know a $1 fee per bond where again one bond is usually $1000 of face value and it may be subject to some minimum like you know one, $1 fee per bond subject to a minimum commission of 10 you know maximum of whatever uh, there's possibly that. That's if you buy them, you know, electronically directly yourself. If you call up and speak to a voice broker, expect there to be a larger fee. You know, maybe it's fifty bucks. I, I don't know. Every broker's going to be a little different. But point is that there will almost certainly be some sort of fee to buy or sell a bond, whereas there's usually not with uh, um, buying or selling a, a stock. Again, I think I touched on this, but bonds are generally sold in uh, or exist in in units of one thousand dollars of face value. So you you can't buy you know partial bond. You have to buy things in increments of thousand dollar face value generally, unless the bond has a larger or smaller face value size. Um, you know you're going to be stuck to a thousand bucks per bond or whatever its its denomination is. Also, similar to stocks, there's going to be a bid ask spread to it. This is simply when you buy this bond, you're ultimately buying it from some other broker. Um, or your broker itself, but they make money partly, in addition to the trading fees that they charge you, like the dollar per bond I gave my example, there's also a bid-ask spread, meaning the prices at which the the dealers, the brokers buy and sell are gonna be slightly different. And they make a little bit of money on, on that difference. So for example, when you buy a bond from a dealer or broker, the price at which they buy, in other words, you sell, is called the bid price, and the price at which they sell, meaning you buy, is called the ask price. And the bid price is going to be lower than the ask price and that's how the broker nets the difference so if they're if, if you want to um, uh, buy a bond from them meaning they're going to sell it to you they're going to charge you the ask price and let's assume that's you know uh, 101 dollars. and you turn around and you want to sell it so you want to sell to them which means they, they're going to buy from you they're going to charge you the bid price which is going to be let's say 99 dollars. i'm just making up numbers here that's how they, they're they gonna net $2 difference per bond because the price at which they buy is gonna be lower than the price at which they sell. They keep themselves that difference. That's the bid-ask spread, which is a fundamental way in which uh, a lot of Wall Street and the brokerage industry uh, makes, makes money. It's not a dirty secret. I mean, it is what it is. They need to get compensated somehow, but just be aware that it's there. If you buy a bond and immediately turn around and sell it, you're almost certainly gonna lose money because there's gonna be a bid-ask spread where the price at which you sell it for is gonna be slightly lower than the price at which you paid for it. Um, and it's a kind of a zero sum game, you know, that the broker made that money at at your expense. Uh, So it is what it is. Just be aware it's there. All right. So that's how you um, buy and sell bonds through a brokerage account or through an IRA or something. It ultimately goes through your custodian or broker. Uh, Next, let's talk about credit ratings. This wasn't something, this isn't something that really exists in the stock world. Um, because remember, a stock doesn't necessarily have any sort of payments along the way. You know, maybe it has a dividend, maybe not. Even if it does have a dividend, those dividends are not required. Uh, certain shares of stock do have required dividends, but generally, what's called common shares of stock, which was what I was focused on last week, dividends are optional. Now, companies may consistently pay them and may have for decades, but they're not required to. They, they can stop those whenever. You know, so there's no contractual obligation for companies to pay dividends. With a bond, very different story. A bond literally is a big, fat, documented, contractual obligation. You may not actually see it. Now, when you buy a bond, you are given access to There is this, this huge bond indenture, which is uh, it, its contract, if you will. You pro- you're probably probably never going to see it or notice it. Know that it exists. Know that you can get access to it if you ever want to through asking the custodian. Um, if you ever want to see it, it'd be cool to see it. You're probably going to get charged by a custodian to actually see it. But uh, anyway, so point is, uh, the the repayment of principal in a bond and the ongoing interest payments are contractual obligations from the company. With that said, there's credit risk involved. Um, You know, fly-by-night chop shop company who's willing to pay you a 1000 bucks a month may sound great, but what if they don't have that money? Or or how do you know if they're going to be good for it? How do you know they're willing and able to ultimately pay you the contractual obligations they have to you as you, the bondholder? So there's, there's something called credit ratings. These are, uh, you know, quantified measures of the perceived credit worthiness of the borrower, the bond issuer, which try to give, you know, investors at large some sort of um, numerical gauge of the likelihood of bondholders receiving interest and in principal in full and on time. Now, there's third party companies that that create these ratings. It's names like S and P or Standard and Poor's, or Moody's is another big one in the U.S. The third big one in the u.s is is fitch it's smaller than moody's and s&p but you know i'd say those three collectively are are the top three so now those companies their job is literally to rate credit uh you know the credit worthiness of of lenders of um i'm sorry of borrowers of bond issuers so kind of similar to like in the in the personal world you know how we all have credit scores um from transunion experience and equifax Credit scores are simply, you know, formula that takes into account various information about us and tries to come up with a number that signifies how, how credit worthy we are. Well, these credit ratings from S&P, Moody's and Fitch are, are loosely uh, comparable in, in, in their, well, very comparable in their purpose, at least. The specifics of, are different, but the, uh, the purpose is, is the same. Um, the, the rating scales are slightly different. But they start at, let's just say triple A for the highest, all the way down to D, which means default, like this bond, the person had, you know, the company has stopped paying. Uh they're not able to pay. And then there's a whole scale in between. It'll be like triple A, double A, single A, triple B, double B, single B, triple Z, blah, blah, blah. And within each of those, there'll be further um classifications. So like uh, you know, SP will have double A plus, double A you know, n- nothing and then double A AA-. minus. And then I have single A plus, single A, no subscript or whatever, and then single A minus. So there's various scales within the scales. And Moody's has a slightly different one. It'll be like, um, instead of, whereas S&P will be double B, Moody's will be BA is what it's called. And then instead of plus or minus, they have one, two, three. So a little different on the surface, but uh, functionally quite the same. And, you know, the, so you as a, as a potential bond buyer or an existing bond holder, you may look to, okay, what's the rating of this bond or rating of the issuer? So you can help make a decision about, how, you know, what what do independent companies like Moody's, S&P, and Fitch say about the credit worthiness of this bond or the issuer? And you can take that into consideration when making your purchase. Now, um, quick uh, word of warning, I guess. The bond raters the credit, credit raters like S&P, Moody's, and Fitch, they're paid by the bond issuers. So there's this inherent conflict of interest. Um, you know, at, at, at one extreme, the you would think that the, uh, or there's a case to be made, I should say, that the credit rating agencies are going to give, un, um, I don't want to say unfair, but higher than they should ratings to the bond issuers, because again, they're paid by the bond issuers. They want and need the bond issuers business so there's this kind of inherent conflict and incentive to make sure you keep the bond issuers happy because if you give a bad rating to a bond issuer they may be like oh forget you i'm not using you again i'm gonna go use the other guy to come up my rating and then you just lose some business now in theory they're supposed to be completely independent and um you know forthcoming and honest in their ratings and shouldn't be tainted by the hand that feeds them but in reality who knows now going back to the mortgage the credit crisis the financial crisis of 2008 2009 lots of people were to blame uh, you know everyone including you and I consumers as a whole but um, there's lots of blowback about the credit rating agencies that gave what ultimately ended up being crazy high unrealistically high uh, ratings to a lot of these uh, junk securities that ultimately collapsed, these mortgage-backed securities and people looked at the rating agency like how could you possibly have rated that that high it was nothing but garbage you know it was, it was dog food wrapped up in a, in a garbage bag so uh, anyway I'm, I'm not pointing fingers but there is wide to be, to have to believe to have been some conflict in interest with the rating agencies giving unnecessarily high ratings to the uh, issuers that paid them. So, anyway, just keep that in mind. Um, now, frankly, even if it is a bit of a flawed model, I don't know how you're going to do better. I mean, you can do your own diligence and research of companies, and a lot of people do. And that was one of my jobs professionally was to try to rate uh, the the uh, people to whom we lent money in one of my jobs. But uh, as a retail person, you're, you're almost certainly not going to have access to the same. Um, uh, information as the professional agencies, you know, access to the managers to talk to them about future of the company, stuff like that. But anyway, I'll, I'll stop there about credit agencies. I can talk about that for a while, but uh, I just wanted to recap what they are at a high level. Uh, some other terms related to that. There's something called investment grade bonds. Those are simply bonds whose rating is uh, triple B or better from S and P or Moody's. And then anything who, any bond whose rating is below that is called a high yield bond or junk bond, AKA junk. Same thing. Doesn't actually mean it's junk. It just means it's riskier compared to investment grade. But, but junk is, is a bit of a, uh, I don't know, unnecessarily harshly toned word. In my opinion, uh, junk doesn't mean junk. It just means it's not investment grade. Now there are some bonds out there that are junk. Don't get me wrong. That where it's like, you know, the, the. The, the borrower is on its last leg and yeah, it's probably going to default, in which case it's truly junk in every sense of the word. But um, anyway, I, 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 I don't like the term junk, but it, but it is widely used. It also means high yield uh, bond. All right. Uh, why bond, Why buy a bond as an investment? Yeah, that's probably why you all came here. So like I talked about the last couple episodes, as a financial investment, you are looking for one of or two things out of it. One is ongoing cash flow while you own this thing, and or two, selling it for a price that's higher than what you paid for it. So you can make a gain on it that way. A bond is no different. You buy a bond for one or both of those things. Now, what's different between a bond and stock is because bonds do have these contractually uh, obligated coupons and interest payments, you do typically buy them more so for the cash flow they throw off. Whereas, as I said last week, not all stocks pay dividends, in which case, what are you buying it for? You know, you're buying it to eventually, hopefully, sell it for more than you paid for it. With a bond, there is going to be, in most cases, some interim cash flow you get while you own it. Or you can also um, buy it with, with the hope, with the expectations of its price going up, and then you eventually sell it for more. So you, you can make money uh, two ways in bonds. You could also lose money in that, that the price at which you sell it for um, could be less than, uh, than what you paid for, in which case you ha- you have a loss there, but at least you will have gotten some interest along the way uh, from from the from the coupon payments. So know that again, bonds are contractual obligations to pay certain amounts of money at certain times. You know exactly what all of your cash flows are going to be with a bond without any certainty, uh, without any uncertainty. Now the uh, uh, that's assuming the issuer, you know, the the one you bought the bond from doesn't default. If the company does default, the government does default. Yes, you may not get all of your uh, interest payments in principle, or if you do, it's going to be late possibly. But uh, you know, for now, assume no default. You know exactly what you're going to get and when, when you own this bond versus with a stock. Again, you don't know what you're going to get, especially if a stock doesn't pay dividend. The only way to monetize that position is by selling it. With a bond, you can simply hold it until it matures. You will get the interest along the way, and the, again, let's assume $1,000 face value paid out to you at the end when the bond matures. Now, if you sell the bond along the way, the price at which you sell it, as I, as I touched on, could be different than the price at which you paid for it. could be more, could be less. Whereas if you hold it until maturity, you will get, again, barring any defaults by the issuer, you will get the face value, again, assume it's $1,000. So you know exactly what you're gonna get and when, uh, absent default, or if you, again, you sell it early, you're going to sell it into the market, in which case the price that we, uh, the price you get could be more, could be less than what you paid for it. Um, so maybe you do make or lose money there. Now, talking about that, let's now talk about how you value bonds, how you come up with the price of a bond. So, uh, super super high level, it's simply you take all these known cash flows that, that are again you know when they're going to happen, how much they're going to happen, uh, you know how much they're going to be when they happen. And you do you, you, what's called you discount or you present value them to a single uh present day value of what's you know the current value of the sum of all of those future cash flows now this is going to get technical apologies in advance there's not a way to make this not technical because th- there inherently needs to be some basic financial math belying the process of coming up with the bond value there's simply no way around it and this is one of the reasons why bonds get a bit technical and, and hard to understand, especially for those who aren't comfortable with, uh, uh, you know, this is some numbers and math and, and financial, con- you know, math math concepts to uh, uh, have floating around in your head. But I'll try to make it as straightforward as I can. It's going to be a little difficult because I don't have visuals here. Um, this makes a lot more sense. If you go back to that YouTube video I was referencing, you'll see this in a spreadsheet. It'll make more sense. Now it's going to feel a little clunky trying to verbalize this, but I'll, but I'll do the best I can to keep it uh, high level and, and fairly simple. So valuing a stock is hard because sometimes there's no cash flows, like I said, especially stocks that don't pay dividends. So what are you actually getting, right? Uh, You're not getting any direct monetization until you eventually sell it. Um, If you are getting dividends, you don't know necessarily exactly how many dividends or how much dividends you're going to get. You you may know now or you may know next year, but you're not going to know five years, 10 years from now. Now you can guess, you know, there's, there's uh, processes to try to come up with estimates, but. You really don't know, and again, because there's no finite end date for a stock, am I going to get dividends for five years, ten years, fifty years, hundred years? I don't know. With a bond, very different. Uh, you know, a bond, all the cash flows are known when you first buy the bond, and there is this finite end date to it. So it's much uh, easier to start to start. Um, you know, the cash flows now. It's just a question of okay, how do I derive a current day value? for the right to receive all these future known cash flows. Right, That, that that's that's where, I'm, where, we're, where we're getting into now. Uh, ultimately, it comes down to the current level, the market level of interest rates and required returns for owning bonds, for owning that bond or or bonds like it. This is where it gets technical. There's something called the time value of money. Uh, you know, anyone who's taken an intro to finance course, this is definitely gonna be part of it. and. The, the the gist of the time value of money says that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future and vice versa. A dollar in the future is worth less than a dollar today. And that's simply because money has the unique ability of earning interest. Um, so for example, assume you can get a guaranteed 5% interest per year on money you put into a bank account today. Right. I'm, it's, that's high for today, but let's keep the math easy. Let's just assume there's a 5% interest you can get if you were to put money in a bank account today. So let's assume that that is the current rate of interest that you should be starting with when, when trying to value your bond. So if I were to now ask you, you know, with that known, you can get 5% interest in a bank. If I were to give you the choice of receiving $100 today or $100 in exactly a year, which one would you take? Right. So your answer logically should be $100 now as opposed to $100 in the future. Because if you can get $100 now, you know you have the option of putting it in a bank that $100 cash has the ability to earn interest. Specifically in our case, it can earn 5% interest for a year. So you can take $100 now, put it in a bank in one year's time, it'll be equal to $105. Therefore, if you have the option of getting $100 today or $100 in one year, no one in the right mind logically speaking, should take $100 in the future. Because you, again, you can take $100 now, put it in a bank, in one year's time be worth $105. So with that said, um, you can look at it the other way around. If you were to get $100 today, how much would it be worth or should it be worth in one year's time? The answer is $105. And you can work backwards. If I were to give you $105 one year from now, how much would you be willing to pay for it today using that same logic we just did, the 5% five in the future and vice versa at an interest rate of 5%. Now it's a little different. What if interest rates were only 4%, right? Then a hundred dollars today should be worth $104 in the future. Cause you can get a hundred dollars it in the bank account, get four bucks of interest during the year, such that one year's time, it's worth 104. So now you can flip it. If I were to give you the option of, okay, do you want $104 in the future or a hundred dollars today? What would you say? Well, you say, well, if the interest rate is 4%, then they're equal. Right, because hundred dollars today can grow to one hundred four in the future. Then again, you can look at that backwards. One hundred four in the future is worth one hundred dollars today because the interest rate is four percent. That makes sense. Uh, again, a little technical if you're not familiar with this, but that that is the whole premise, the whole backbone of how you attempt to value bonds. Um, okay, so so we did that backwards. Now the um, pro, so remember I said a bond isn't just one cash flow. It's potentially dozens, you know, a 10-year bond that pays semi-annual cash flows is going to have 20 different cash flows, right? Two interest payments a year times uh, times 10 years, plus also at the end, the uh, repayment of the um, $1,000 principal value or face value or par value. So the simple exercise I did of assume you can get $105 paid in one year, what's it worth today? You have to do that for all future cash flows of the bond. So let's go back to the original bond we are talking about. It was $1,000. It was 10 years. It was 5% annual interest, which means uh, 2.5% interest twice a year. So the cash flows of that bond are you're going to get $25 in interest twice a year for 10 years. So that's uh, that's what? 20 total payments for $25. And also a $1,000 face value repayment at the end. So you have to do this time value of money, financial math. You have to figure out What's the appropriate interest rate that's going to apply for this coupon I'm going to receive in six months, and this one I'm going to receive in one year, and this one I'm going to receive in 18 months, and this next one in 24 months, this next one in 30 months, et cetera. You have to figure out the appropriate rate that applies to each of those different lengths of time, and then use this time value of money concept to convert these known future payments, again, the $25 uh, every uh, every six months plus $1,000 at the end. You have to discount them back to a present day equivalent, using again the applicable interest rate for that for that length of time, and then after you do that for all these uh, twenty different cash flows, well technically twenty one cash flows when you add in the principal repayment, uh, you get the the present value of each of those twenty or twenty one. Sum them up. That's the price of the bond. Period. Simple. Right? <laughs> no. Um, I mean, it is simple. If you simpler if you see it in the spreadsheet again, so definitely check out that, the link to the YouTube video I, uh, I'm going to reference in the notes of the show. But th- that, that's it in a nutshell. That's how you come up with the price of a bond. You take all the known future cash flows, you use the time value of money, financial math concept to come up with a present day value of each of those using the current level of interest rates, sum up all those present values for all the cash flows. That's the value of the bond. That in theory is what the price should be. That's what you should be willing to uh, to uh, to pay for the bond. Uh, makes sense so far. Hopefully, still with me. So I probably shouldn't do. That. I want to give a quick example, of some actual numbers. This will definitely be clunky. This is better to see visual, but hopefully, it'll it'll. It's important for this next concept I want to talk about: the relationship between change in bond price and interest rate changes. So let's um, bear with me, you know uh, appease me here as I go through this example. Hopefully it's not too painful. Here's an example. There's a bond that has two years left, and let's just assume it pays interest annually. Uh, I'm gonna assume it's only a hundred dollar bond as opposed to a thousand. Just keep the math that much simpler. So uh, it's a five percent interest bond. So you're gonna receive uh, five dollars in interest this year, five dollars in interest next year, and also next year you're gonna receive back the $100 dollars of uh, principal. Value in the bond such that in two years, you're, you're getting $105 back total. Again, the $5 uh, final coupon plus $100 uh, principal repayment. How much would you be willing to pay for that bond, which is really just these two cash flows? Now, at one extreme, it can't be more than $110. There's no logical reason it would. At most, your economics in this bond are you're going to get $5 in one year plus another 105 in two years. Add those up, that's $110 total there's no logical reason anyone would be willing to pay more than the simple sum of the remaining cash flows because that's it that's a maximum you can get economically from this bond so the price has to be capped at 110 there's no feasible logical reason to pay more well i guess if interest rates were negative but let's let's not let's not go there so anyway so the maximum value of this bond can't be more than $110 it needs to be something less than but how much less and this is where again that function of interest rates come in so let's assume the market level of interest rates is five percent. Meaning, if you were to take money today, put it in a bank, you can earn five percent for one year or even two years. I'm going to assume to keep the math easy. How much is how much is the, is this bond worth? So your first cash flow, the uh, you're going to receive five dollars interest in one year time at a five percent assumed interest rate. You know that you can earn five percent interest today. That would be equal to four dollars and seventy six cents today. Now, if you want to work at that backwards, you take $4.76, add 5% to it, meaning if you would invest it for a year at 5%, that's going to end up equaling $5 in one year time. See what I did there? Um, so I took the known $5 future cash flow in one year, discounted it back at a rate of interest of 5%, and that equals $4.76 in today's present value. Doing the same process, for the $105 you're going to be receiving in two years, which again is a second and final interest payment and the $100 principal payment, If you can invest money today at 5% interest per year, such that it equals 105 bucks in two years' time, that present day value is going to be $95.24. So now remember I said valuing a bond is simply doing the present value of all of its cash flows and summing those up. Well, if we sum up the $4.76 present value of the first coupon, and then the $95 and 24 cent present value of th- that, that final payment, that equals $100 when you sum those two. So that's what you should be willing to pay for this bond today. That's the price or the value of the bond today would be $100. Now, with that example in mind, what if the market level of interest were to decline? What if the market level of interest is now 4% per year, not 5%? You're still gonna have the same cash flows. You know, again, it's a 5% coupon bond with a $100 principal repayment. So in one year, you're getting five bucks. And in two years, you're getting 105 bucks back. Now you're only discounting them at 4% interest. Or in other words, how much money would it take today at 4% interest to to grow to $5 in one year time and $105 in two years time? Well, at 4% interest, the math is going to be that 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 first coupon payment has a present value of $4.81, whereas it was $4.76 before. So again, $4.81 invested for a year at 4% is going to equal dollars, And that second payment has a present value of uh, $97.08, whereas before it was $95.24. Uh, and so now, if you sum up the present value of the first and second payments, you get uh, what do you get? You, you get uh 95. Where'd it go? I had it here. Uh, why did I not add these up? Oh, I'm sorry. It's $101.89. So let's let's pause there for a moment. When the market level of interest was 5%, the bond was worth $100. That was a previous example I just gave. If the market level of interest drops to 4%, the the present value of this bond, the price of the bond is now $101.89. The price just went up. That's important to know. As interest rates go down, the price of the bond goes up and vice versa. I have another example to show that, and maybe I won't get into it because it's kind of thick. But um, as interest rates go up, the price of a bond goes down. Why is that? You have to visualize and, and understand this time value of money concept. A smaller level of interest means it takes more money today at that smaller level of interest to grow to some certain amount in the future. That makes sense? Hopefully the the numbers I gave made sense. That's why I did it. I, I know it's not good to give numerical examples in an audio format, but, but I thought it was important. To, to get those numbers in front of you just to try to make some sense of this relationship this inverse relationship between bonds and interest rates or bond prices and interest rates as market level of interest rates goes down bond price goes up and uh and vice versa um i'll, I'll spare you the number the other the other example was what if in the market level of interest was 6% then what happens to the price of the bond well the price drops it goes down from 100 originally to now $98.17 um, the math behind that, you know, definitely check out that YouTube video. I'll link to that. That that'll make it come to life much more because you can see it in spreadsheet form. Uh, I, I don't want to further belabor this here because it's not ideal to do through through podcast format. Um. So, anyway, just that's a huge takeaway: as market level of interest goes up, bond prices go down, and vice versa. As market level of interest goes down, bond prices go up. That's what happened last year, 2022. Market level of interest rates shot up a lot which means bonds and you know, bond prices went down a lot. Uh, so far this year, they, they sort of uh, reversed a little bit. And 2019, 2020 was the opposite. Interest rates went down a lot. So prices of bonds went up substantially across those two years, uh, whereas you know, they gave it all back last year. So anyway, now the, the price of a bond and the price change of a bond only really matters if, you're, if you don't plan on holding the bond until maturity. Because remember, a bond is a contractual obligation to pay you known amounts of, of interest and known amounts of principal repayments at certain times, at, at known times. So if you hold the bond till it matures, you will get those known amounts of money. Again, barring the uh issuer defaulting and not being able to pay you, you know what you're going to get and when. So along the way, I don't wanna say it doesn't matter, but if you don't plan on selling the bond, the price will move along the way as the market level of interest goes up and goes down Bond price is going to sway around, but if you're holding it to maturity, eventually you will get your your interest payments and your you know $1,000 uh, principal repayment at, at the end. So the price change matter in that if you're looking at your broker statements along the way, you'll see the value of the bond move around throughout time. But if you don't sell it, you're not actually locking in that, that gain or that loss from the bond price moving, right? You just sit there and keep getting your interest payments and your eventual... Uh, um, uh, uh, principal repayment. Again, barring default of the issuer, that, that's a different story. So that's that's bond prices. I, there's more I can say about that, but I don't want to get too further in the weeds with it. Definitely check out that video I'm going to link to. Let's summarize some uh, risks in bonds. The big one is what's called interest rate risk. As I touched on before, when the market level of interest goes up, bond prices go down and vice versa. Now there's a phenomenon called uh, duration which is a measure of how much interest rate risk a bond has, meaning how sensitive is its price movements to changes in interest rates and all else equal, the longer the maturity of a bond, the higher the duration or the higher the interest rate risk will be. Meaning a 30 year bond versus a one year bond, for example, for a given change in interest rates, a 30 year bond is going to have a much larger change in price than a one year bond will I don't want to get into why that that video I'm linking to has it more spelled out. That that definitely gets more in the weeds mathematically, which which I'm hesitant to do here. But just realize, you know, longer the bond is, the more uh, the larger its price changes will be for a given change in the market level of uh, of interest rates. So remember, I said even if you hold the bond to maturity, that the change in price doesn't really matter because you will get the um, coupon and, and principal repayment, barring default of the issuer. It doesn't mean it's riskless. There's still what's called the reinvestment risk, meaning, so let's assume you have a bond that's old and it's paying like a really high interest rate because rates were high at the time. You hold it till it matures. And you're like, yeah, cool. You know, I'm getting 10% interest on this bond. Awesome. Well, when that bond matures, you now get cashed out. You get your $1,000 uh, principal value back. You don't have to do something with it. You, you now have to reinvest it. You are now at the mercy of whatever the current level of interest rates are now to reinvest that bond in. If rates are much lower than they were when you first got the bond, that's called reinvestment risk. So it's the risk that you don't know what interest rates will be when your bond eventually matures and you're at the mercy of having to uh, reinvest and do something else with that with that bond. That's reinvestment risk. The other big risk is credit risk. This is, remember I said that these are contractual obligations. These are debt. These are a borrower promising to repay you what if that borrower is not good for it? What if they fall on hard times you know, somewhere along the way and can't pay you in full or on time? That's credit risk. As I mentioned before, there are agencies, independent agencies that attempt to um, measure that for, for the benefit of investors at large so they can you know, try to form a, a meaningful opinion about how, how risky a company is and whether or not they, they're worth the credit risk. So that's credit risk. And there's also, um, I didn't talk about this at all yet, And it's not that common, but there's also foreign exchange risk to the extent you own a bond whose uh, principal and or coupon payments are denominated in a currency, something other than your home operating currency. So for example, you here in the US, you were to buy a bond issued by a French company where the coupon payments and principal are going to be in euros. You still have the interest rate risk. You still have the credit risk, but now fold into the mix. There's also foreign exchange risk going to get let's say 50 euros a year in uh, coupon payments what if the value of the euro drops relative to the dollars along the way or vice versa you know the value of euro goes up relative to dollars well when you when you translate when you convert those euro uh coupon payments back to dollars you may make or lose money in that in that foreign exchange uh, conversion process so, so that's another risk so at a high level that that's a few risks i want to talk about uh with bonds why, with, with, with that in mind, with risk in mind, why are bonds often viewed as less risky than stock? So bonds aren't no risk, um, and last year was it was a clear example of that. But bonds are generally less risk, depending on the bond, depending on the stock you're comparing it to. Bonds are, are generally less risk as a whole, and here's why. Um, worst case scenario, we talked about this in the stock example last week. If a company ever goes bankrupt, what that means is, oops, you know, we have more liabilities than, than we have debt. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, than we have assets or simply, they, they, let's, not even that, let's just assume they decide to go out of business for whatever reason. Um, they close up shop, they pay off all their, all their uh, you know, lenders, anyone they owe money to, they, they pay out first and then whatever's left, that all gets paid out to the stockholders. You know, there the, is the, the, the owners of, of the company. Bonds, debt, they're higher up. They they uh, they get paid out first when a company closes and liquidates. You know they get paid out first before equity holders. So at one extreme, if a company goes bust, bondholders are much much more likely to actually still get paid something on their bond than our equity holders who who are only get what's left after bondholders get paid out. So from that perspective, bonds are substantially uh, less risky than stocks when a company unwinds and, and closes its doors and pays out, you know, bondholders will get paid out before uh, equity, if at all, if equity holders even get anything. So th- so there's that. There's also the fact that the interest payments in a bond are and the principal repayment are known and contractual requirements. Uh, as I said before, dividends, dividends are completely voluntary in most cases. Now, many companies that pay dividends do pay consistently and, that, and that's intentional, but there's no guarantee. They can stop anytime if they want or need to bonds you don't have a choice you know the, the bond uh, issuer the company doesn't have a choice. they have to pay because their contracts are required to. now if they can't that's a different story like if the company goes bust you know it falls on really hard times et cetera then yeah then they may not be able to pay you in full they'll have to pay you whatever they can and then again pay whatever's left to the stockholders but um, po- point is they, they can't voluntarily choose to not pay you or they can but they default so which they wouldn't want. Uh, so anyway, so so there's this contractual known obligation when owning a bond, whereas there's not with a stock. So there's another reason why it's, it's, it's viewed as less risky. The uh, price movements of, of some bonds, not all bonds, but some bonds are much more, um, well, I guess actually all bonds, the, the price movements are much more range bound than they can be with a stock. A stock can go to zero you know if if a company goes bankrupt and there's nothing left after bondholders get paid out a stock can and has gone to zero wiped out completely so at one extreme stocks can be priced at zero you can lose everything the other extreme price of a stock can can, can be in theory infinite i mean not actually infinite but it could be ridiculously high look at the, like um you know the, the tech bubble of uh late 90s in, in the ridiculous levels of, of prices that many stocks went to look at uh tesla i'm not saying tesla i'm not just i'm not making a recommendation on it but look how high the price of tesla shares shot up they came down a lot but look how high they shot up over the last um 10 years not to say there wasn't logic or fund. i mean i don't think there was but um like i like i mentioned last week in stock the stock market is one big auction people can pay for for the um you know, the price of stocks will be whatever the market wants it to be, no matter how high or low or unrealistic or irrational it is, that's the price, deal with it. Partly because there, there are no tangible known cash flows like there are with bonds. So it's, it's it's a lot of wild speculation and guessing about what you think a stock is worth or what you think its income payments are going to be. With a bond, you know with certainty what the payments are going to be. So, so anyway, much easier. So, trying to bring this back here, the the prices of bond, of bonds are range bound. Remember, I said before, the, the the maximum price of a bond can't possibly be more than the sum of its of its remaining cash flows, at most. Because why would you ever pay more than what you can possibly receive for for owning the bond? Um, at the low end, in theory, a bond could be zero, but in reality you're almost certainly going to get at least something, even under the nastiest of bankruptcies, there's likely going to be something for most bondholders such that the price isn't going to be zero and, and the market knows that. So it's really just the, the price is just a function of the change in interest rates and that time value of money concept. Um, so, so there are sort of mathematical bounds to what the price of a, of a bond could be, where there's really not with stocks. It can be a silly, crazy and irrational to, uh, to try to value stock prices. So for that reason, there's generally not as much price movement uh, in bonds as there are stocks because they are range bound. Now that's not to say that there's not going to be some bonds that lose uh, you know wh- whose price moves a lot in one year relative to, to a certain stock whose price doesn't move at all. Or even last year, for example, 2022, most bonds went down in value because interest rates went up and bond changes, you know bond price changes are really nothing more than changes in interest rates. There's more to it, but but generally it's that. Um, whereas some stocks, namely those in like the energy sector, went up last year. So you would be saying, "There's no way you can tell me bonds are less risky." My my energy stocks went up thirty percent. My bonds went down ten percent. What are you talking about, Andy? Dummy. Well, yes, that's true. You know, you look at any specific security or securities. Sure, um, you can't unequivocally say bonds will always be safer or go up more, go down less than than you know the stock. But as a whole. Bonds are, are you know, the prices are much more range bound than they are with stocks. Therefore, they're viewed as less risky than stocks. Again, not risk free, but less risky. So, so that's, that's the high level of why bonds are viewed as less risky than stocks. Again, they, they could lose money, as last year showed. Um, they can default potentially. They can go down more in value than some stocks can or even stock market as a whole. There can be times where a stock market's flat, let's say, for the year and bonds, you know, bond market goes down a little bit. It's definitely possible. Uh, okay, so other sort of random comments here. i wrapping up soon. There are a lot more bonds than stocks in the world, um, which makes it hard for investors to, to decide which ones to buy when they want to, which is another reason why I think bonds are sort of misunderstood and kind of shied away from because people don't quite understand them. And I'm not, I don't mean that as a dig. It just, it is what it is. So for example, when companies have stock, there's usually just one stock. Like if you go buy stock in Microsoft or General Electric or Ford, it is what it is. There's not generally not different classes or different types of stock. There's just stock. Now, in reality, some companies have what's called preferred stock. There may be some shares have voting rights, some don't, but generally speaking, you buy common stock and company X, Y, Z, that's it. You don't have a choice. It's, it's just, it's the same thing. It's this homogenous common stock as common stock is common stock, but that same company, company X, Y, Z could have dozens of different bonds outstanding. It could have bonds issued at different times with different maturities and different coupons, um, different levels of seniority. What does that mean? Remember, I said uh, if and when a company closes a shop or, or you know goes bankrupt, it has to pay out its debt holders, its bond holders first before it pays out anything to uh, to equity holders. There could be different levels of seniority within the bonds of who gets paid out first. There could be bonds that are just general credit obligations of the company. There could be other bonds that are specifically secured and collateralized by certain assets of the company. You know those would be viewed as safer than general obligations. There could be uh, what's called senior versus junior and subordinated. You know different tranches or different levels of uh, who ultimately gets paid out first in a in a liquidation type scenario. So this all goes to say that just there's only one class of stock. Usually there could be dozens of different bonds to choose from if you want to buy bonds in company X, Y, Z. So it makes it kind of confusing. Like, which one do I choose and why? Uh, I, won't, I can't Won't answer that here. But anyway, you know, just know that there's lots of different bonds potentially for different companies, whereas there's usually just one, one stock for companies. Now, some terminology specific to bonds issued by the United States Treasury or Treasury bonds. Um, generically, people just refer to them as bonds Technically, that there are different terms to be used. If it's a U.S. Treasury security and a U.S. Treasury debt obligation whose original maturity is one year or less, that is technically called a bill, so or Treasury bill or a T bill is another word for it. If it is something that whose original maturity is greater than one year and up to ten years, that's called a Treasury note. And if it's a uh, Treasury obligation whose original maturity is greater than ten years, that is technically called a Treasury bond. So, bills, notes, and bonds. Now, again, in reality, practically speaking, most people just generically refer to these all as treasury bonds, which is fine, but there are technical distinctions between the terms bills, notes, and bonds uh, for US treasuries, uh, which signify their um, uh, original times to maturity. Finally, uh, there's a lot going on in this episode. I apologize. Hopefully, it's making sense, though. And I'll, Again, I'll try to tie it all together in a later episode when I talk about um, you know portfolio management stuff, but Savings bonds, U.S. government savings bonds, what you've all been waiting for probably. Um, these are special types of bonds issued by the U.S. government. They are not the quote-unquote normal treasury bills and those are bonds I just mentioned. These are savings bonds. You cannot buy them through a brokerage account, you know, unlike these normal bonds I've been talking about where you can. You can only buy these U.S. savings bonds direct from the U.S. treasury through treasurydirect.gov. There are some... You can potentially, you know, you can buy some tax return refunds, but for now, let's just keep it simple. You can only buy these treasury bonds, these savings bonds from directly from the US Treasury through uh, treasurydirect.gov. There is no secondary market for them. Once you buy them, you can't resell them to someone else. You can only sell them back or, or redeem them direct from the Treasury. There are two uh, types of savings bonds currently uh, able to be newly issued I bonds and double E bonds, you know, series EE bonds. I-bonds, many of you have probably heard of. I did an episode on them. They've been all the rage uh, over the last year. It's a special type of savings bond where the interest that's paid is based on inflation, You know, actual realized inflation. And the interest rate resets every six months based on what the actual realized inflation was for over the last six months. These bonds last for 30 years from the date you buy them. Um, they will pay interest, like I said, uh, throughout the life. The interest rate resets every six months. Uh, if you do happen to still hold it at the end of 30 years that's it bonds over they get cashed out if you want out early you can redeem them direct uh, you know direct from the government you, you can't sell them to someone else now there are some restrictions uh, you can't redeem them within the first 12 months of when you buy it and if you redeem them from one year to uh, five years there's a, a bit of a penalty uh, interest penalty beyond five years from initial purchase you are free to redeem them whenever without any uh penalty or whatever so so that's an i bond the other one that's still currently issued is, is a, a double e-bond. This pays a fixed rate of interest and that, that fixed rate is known at the time you buy it, whereas with an i-bond, the interest rate changes every six months. EE bonds pay a fixed rate of interest. That fixed rate lasts for 20 years. You can, you can sell out of them prior. Uh, again, you can only redeem them direct to the government. You can't sell them in the secondary market. But that, that fixed rate of interest lasts for 20 years and then could change between years 20 and 30. At the end of 30 years, like an i-bond, it's also over. You get cashed out. Now the, the unique spin with these is uh, whatever your fixed rate of interest is for the first twenty years, the the EE bond is guaranteed to double in value uh, by the en- you know at the end of twenty years. So if you do happen to get a low fixed rate of interest now, such that that interest alone won't double the value of the bond over twenty years, the government will top up that that the bond value at the end of twenty years to uh, to get you such that it's doubled. So that, that's an EE bond. I'll I'll, I'll stop there with that. So those are special, unique types of bonds. Everything I talked about today is generically called the bond. But as you can see, there's lots of little distinction and nuances between the types and names of bonds within it such that uh, they can't all be talked about with the same uh, broad stroke brush. Okay, that's it for bonds. You all confused yet? You know, who's sleeping? I I am. I'm I'm close to sleeping. Uh, Hopefully you enjoy this. I, I know it was clunky. I know there's a lot going on, especially for those who aren't. Um, that well-versed in bonds yet. I apologize for that, but definitely do check out the linked YouTube video. That will make more sense because there's more visuals with that. Uh, I, I, I'm i confident you will, you'll find that valuable. So that's it for this episode. This was uh, part three of my intro to investing. This is also episode 59. Next week, episode 60, part four of my intro to investing is going to be a juicy one. It's going to be all about mutual funds and exchange traded funds or ETFs. Uh, definitely come back for that. I do not yet have that recorded, but uh, I can tell you it'll be good. Um, otherwise, if you like uh, like this podcast, definitely please take a moment to to give it a review on Apple or whatever podcast platform you use to listen to it. That'd be greatly appreciated. If you haven't yet checked it out, my new retirementplanningeducation.com website. Uh, I think you'll dig that. Not only are you able to find this podcast there, You will also find links to my YouTube channel of the same name, Retirement Planning Education. My Facebook group, also of the same name, Retirement Planning Education. There's a whole host of freely downloadable documents, checklists, resources that are there for the taking without needing to cough up names or emails to get access. Just click and download. Boom, there you have it. And uh, I already started a blog. There's only one post now from from this month, from January 2023. There will be a, a monthly post going forward. So that'll build out over time. Um, is that it? What else do I normally talk about here? I think that's it. Yeah, that's it. All right. I'm tired. I'm going to bed. Uh, hope you enjoy this and definitely come back next week for my chat about mutual funds and ETF. Thank you as always for listening. I will see you next time. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you have heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you.